Welcome to the Jack Weston MCAT Podcast with your host, Phil Hawkins. And Asai Calderon Muñiz. All righty. Hello. Bonus. <laughs> um, so Phil and I are, you know that we did our AMA um, not too long ago. We had so many great questions. We wanted to make sure that we could address a few more. Uh, we we won't get to all of them, but we're really excited to give you some more answers. Um, and I don't know about you, Phil. I'm just super excited to keep going. Yeah, it, it was a lot of fun doing those. And we had so many good questions come in that like, I think our last episode was like the AMA episode was longer than most of our episodes. I'm like, all right, we have to, we have to limit this. Um, but like looking through it, I feel like there's enough stuff here for another episode, even after today. And so you may see another episode where we kind of address some of those, some of the other questions. If you haven't had your question answered, you may see that a little bit later on down the line, but there were just, we're just like immediately like, oh yeah, there's some more questions here that we really want to want to jump into. Absolutely. So diving right in, um, we're going to start with some content, unlike last time. So Sabrina sent in a question about, does Le Chatelier's principle apply to catalyzed reactions? So there are two different ways that I want to address this question. Um, So first, thinking about a reaction that runs with a catalyst, and then a reaction to which a catalyst is added. So backing up a little bit, though, beforehand, so Le Chatelier's principle is all about if you change the um, environment, right, of of a reaction, in what direction will the reaction move in order to restore equilibrium, right? So it's all about maintaining equilibrium. And then thinking about catalysts and what catalysts do. So catalysts are enzymes that speed up a reaction. They do not actually affect um, what the equilibrium is but rather how quickly you reach equilibrium. So they don't affect, right, uh, KEQ, et cetera. Um, They just affect speed by decreasing, by providing a favorable environment for the reaction to occur um, by decreasing activation energy, et cetera. So for Le Chatelier's principle, if the reaction is is occurring in the presence of a catalyst, right, and then something is done in order to change um, the the reaction quotient, right? The where the reaction is with respect to its equilibrium, the Le Chatelier's principle will still apply because something else was changed, not the catalyst itself, right? Well, the only thing that the catalyst does is it speeds up how quickly you get how quickly you get back to that equilibrium, right? Not the actual equilibrium point itself. Um, on the other hand, if you have a reaction and you add a catalyst, if the question is asking, oh, you know, what will happen based on Le Chatelier's principle? Nothing right? Because you haven't actually changed where the reaction is. If you have a reaction at equilibrium. Yes. If you have a reaction at equilibrium. Um, So, um, and right where we're considering that the question is assuming that you start at equilibrium, you had some change that pushed you away from equilibrium. What would happen in terms of returning? So if you're at equilibrium and you add a catalyst, nothing's going to happen, right? You're maintaining it. All the only thing that the catalyst affects is speed. So you haven't actually shifted away from equilibrium. Um, but again, if you have a reaction that was previously already being catalyzed by, catalyzed by a catalyst and you do something to change it and move it away from equilibrium, Le Chatelier still, Le Chatelier's principle would still apply because it's going to come back to equilibrium. All the catalyst did is make sure that it, or, uh, and help it go and reach equilibrium faster. Right, right. I think that a lot of times it's easier to visualize with numbers. Like if a certain reactant wants to be like 80% product and 20% reactant, if you remove some product that drives it forward, if you remove some reactant, it drives it backwards. And that's Le Chatelier's principle. Like you were saying, adding a 
catalyst just helps it reach equilibrium faster. So if it's not at equilibrium, like in order to get to equilibrium, that may take five seconds. That may take 10 million years. Adding a catalyst just speeds up the rate at which it reaches equilibrium. So if it's already at, if it's already at equilibrium, you add a catalyst, does nothing. Um, but if you have something at equilibrium, you add a catalyst, and then you remove the product, it's still going to go forward. It's actually probably going to go forward faster than it would have normally because it's going to restore equilibrium quicker due to the catalyst. But Wachetelier's principle applies to all reactions, uh, catalyzed, uncatalyzed, doesn't matter. Um, and so we'll just the catalyst is not going to affect this overall, just the rate that it reaches the equilibrium. Um, so to kind of like switch gears a little bit here, um, this is a really good question from Rashna um, about what medical or science-related inaccuracies in mainstream media, shows, movies, books, et cetera, bother you the most. There are so many good answers to this. Um, I like that you didn't say just medical inaccuracies because science inaccuracies, like I see those all the time and I get really annoyed by. Um, but medical inaccuracies, like there's a lot of things, like there's a lot of stuff in like science or in like some of the shows like in house where like the whole episode is them trying to figure this out. But like a lot of times a physician would be like, oh, it's it's obviously this. Like this is the thing you need to check. And then they just don't check that because that would make the the episode too boring if they, it's like, oh, we're confused. Oh, we solved it. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of things like that that like somebody would have caught this uh, earlier. It's not as mysterious as they make it seem. On the other hand, there's also the flip side of that. Um, very rarely in a TV show, do you see a, a doctor go, hang on, I need to go look something up. <laughs> like that's that never happens in a TV show. And I guarantee you that that happens a lot in real life. Um, and so realizing that like, there are some things that doctors are going to know a lot quicker and like make those connections or some that like, no way that doctor knew that about that one weird specific disease. And, you know, that only affects people in Nigeria who live in this one village and eat this one food. Like, like that seems weird. Um, there's also a lot of stuff in the medical shows. I think, like for me, Grey's Anatomy is probably the worst offender at this, where a lot of the stuff outside the medicine about just the way the doctors are acting, it's like they would have got fired so fast. I feel like um, in, in like Grey's Anatomy, um, like the main doctor there, Meredith Grey, I think she would have been fired like seven or eight times and then like not hired anywhere because of a lot of the stuff with like falsifying data and things like that. I'm like, okay, this is not okay. Um, and so it's just kind of a, a, that's kind of a big thing, big thing overall. Yeah. I think for me, before I got into medicine, um, I think it just would have been like the representation of some of the people, uh, and in part just like mental health illnesses, you know, using a lot of stereotyped, um, people and not recognizing like all people are very different from, from, you know, these, these stereotypes oftentimes, but I think now my two biggest frustrations and now mind you, I still indulge in watching house now that, you know, I can actually follow some of these things. It's nice. Mm -hmm. Um, and I do watch, uh, what's the other one? Chicago med. I like it. Um, so those, those I'm scrubs all the way scrubs is the best. I love scrubs. So I watched Scrubs at one point in time. I don't remember much of it anymore. I never got into Grey's Anatomy. I'm too scared to get into Grey's Anatomy at this point, um, just because, you know, limited time. I can only really, it's when I'm eating lunch yeah. and whatnot that I, I watch these. Um, 
But I think now it's the constant wild, ridiculous romances. Like, stop. That, that is not what medicine is like. I mean, maybe, you know, in, in some in some instances that might happen, but I'm just like, we're out here trying to help patients, yeah. not like, you know, run off with somebody or um, start some crazy office drama. And then the other thing is just the amount of things that break the law. Like, like you were saying, like people would have gotten fired for that a long time ago. You mm-hmm. know, I don't know any doctor who has sent people to break into a patient's house to yeah. try and figure out, you know, what home environmental allergens or, or exposures they're having, you know? Um, and yeah, like you pointed out, we do do a lot of like research, looking things up. Um, just last week I was with the a pediatrician and a resident. We were all just sitting down. Child comes in with this rash. That's just like very different. Like a couple of weeks. So I, I'm not even sure anymore at this point, everything just kind of blurs together. But, um, like we sat down and we looked up pictures of different, you know, things that we thought might be causing the rash ended up being probably just an atypical presentation of something. But, you know, we're just like, okay, let's sit down, let's troubleshoot this together because this isn't, it doesn't fit into our usual perception of any of these mm-hmm. um, and the timeline and things like that. So I think those are my my biggest pet peeves at the yeah. moment. I feel like I see stuff in a lot of like TV shows. Like I'll see something like, that's not how a laser works. Like it doesn't, <laughs> like that, that doesn't make any sense. Or you'll hear like yeah. statements about like all sorts of different things, um, especially in a lot of sci-fi things. Um, I think one of the the ones that most annoyed me, um, this was like a long time ago, but like my brother was watching like a GI Joe movie and I like walked in and there was like a big explosion like underwater and all the ice was falling. And I'm like, no, ice floats. <laughs> like that, that's not like a science. Like that's, you should, like if you've ever had a drink of water with ice in it, you know, ice floats. And like totally, I've got super annoyed. Um, and then I was pointing it out and then my brother's like, get out of here. Like you're ruining the movie. Um, and yeah. so, yeah, those, those things do happen. Um, definitely. Um, if you ever watched, there's a sci-fi movie called the core like that. Like <laughs> I think, uh, I I've heard of a drinking game where you just like, anytime you see something that is scientifically inaccurate, you just drink. Um, and like, that's a way to get very drunk very quick. Um, I will okay. not say whether or not uh, I have done that or or watched that, but there you go. Um, <laughs> that's a that's a you know if you're if you're looking for a way to spend an afternoon. Um, okay, <laughs> moving on. Um, so the next question. So we've done science. We've done just light. Um, now we're switching gears back to application. So this is Miranda's question. If you can still put research activities in the autobiographical sketch in your application, even if you didn't publish anything. Absolutely. Yeah. So you put in work, you put in time, you can still tell, right. You can have a conversation about your research with interviewers and that's huge, right. Especially if, um, it's played an important part in either if it was a big part of, of your undergrad experience or maybe in, you know, in a gap year, if um, it was something that you're really passionate about, if it helped influence, you know, your, your desire to continue pursuing medicine, or uh, maybe that's what initially brought you to, to considering medicine, et cetera. Those are all great reasons to include something. And again, you put in the time you put in the work, right? I will say anything you put in your application is fair game for an interview question. 
anything. So whether that's your personal statement, whether that's the activities that you put down, whether, you know, you're talking about um, something that you published, you had better if, you know, for people who have published something, you'd better be able to talk about what you published. Um, So just making sure that whatever you put in your application, you're comfortable with getting questions on. But yes, you put in the work, put it in your application. Yeah. And um, personally, like for me, like I obviously did the MD PhD stuff, which includes a lot more research PhD side of things. Um, I included a lot of stuff on my like research activities. Like I I included a lot of that in my application and some of that did not have any publications Um, either because like one, like this was going nowhere. Like I, we did a bunch of science, the results like just seemed to show like, oh, like there's actually not anything interesting here that we thought that maybe there was. And so it just like, wasn't super publishable. It wasn't super interesting. Um, but we did kind of like have just a negative result, which should tell us something. Um, or maybe I, we were in the middle of like this, a very big, like a much more influential piece, but it hasn't been published yet because we're like putting together all the pieces on that. Um, both of those things I wrote about in my personal statements or not in my personal statement in my like autobiographical sketch where you can kind of put in research activity, definitely feel free to do this. Um, I do want to be clear when I first looked at this question, I thought, um, and this was a question from Miranda. Um, I thought you were asking about like personal statements, like to put like research stuff in your personal statement. I don't, I know that's not what you're asking, but just in case anybody's listening about this, um, I don't think that that's super, uh, like the best way to use that. Um, personal statement is a lot more about who you are as a person. Now, that being said, if you spent like a year doing research in the Congo, like on like, like as like a anthropological sort of thing, totally right about that. If it was like a super, like it, if it helped shape who you are, right? If it changed your viewpoints about the world, um, if you just, you know, did worked in a research lab like one semester and like nothing got published and you only went in like two hours every week, probably not a good thing for your personal statement. Um, and so like you could put something in there, but like your personal statement is a very, uh, personal thing about who you are as a person. And so I feel like if somebody says I did research this semester, that doesn't necessarily tell me about who they are as a person, but as like something on your autobiographical sketch, Totally. Absolutely. You should always do that. One last thought. Your personal statement is not your resume. (laughs) That is, that is, you know, if it's going into your, your activities list, right. Leave that very precious personal statement space for like Phil said, things that make you who you are and that showcase who you are. Yeah, for sure. Um, So the next question was, um, this is actually a really specific, strange scenario. Um, And this is a question from Amanda on any tips on adjusting to the time zone of the place you are taking the exam. I'm from California, but I've had to change my date. So now I'm taking the exam in Iowa. I plan to stay out there for a few days, but I'm a little nervous about being at a random place. This is something that is is a real issue. Um, Especially, I know we talked about this months ago, but with the AAMCs, like how they're dealing with the, the MCAT this year, um, like they haven't drastically increased the number of exam dates, but they're still doing the COVID spacing and all of that. And so there are just fewer seats this year than there were like even before COVID. Um, 
And so that is a little bit scary and frustrating. I know a lot of students are like having to reschedule and move stuff because they get sick, you know, uh, COVID or otherwise. Um, and because of that, a lot of times students are having to travel. Um, and so this is a big challenge um, that is affecting more people this year than I think it has in years past. Um, so adjusting to time zones. Um, I think trying to get onto the schedule of the time zone that you're in um, is useful. Trying to get into that like for maybe a week or two uh, beforehand, I would definitely be trying to do that. Um, uh, Amanda, you're you're going from California to Iowa. I feel like that's the worst direction to go because that means like basically your day needs to start two hours earlier. And so like if you plan on getting up at six o'clock on the day of your actual test, like now to get on that, you'd have to get up at four o'clock in the morning, like in California. And that seems really rough. Um, it's a lot easier if you're going in the other direction. Um, if you're going from like Boston to uh, Utah. Um, then you're like, oh, I'll just sleep in for two more hours. I'm like, yeah, that seems okay. Um, the like the the most important thing, Amanda, is something that you actually have in your question that you plan to stay out there for a few days. I definitely would not plan on arriving in that town the night before. And this is even if you're in the same time zone, right? If you're from California but you're taking the test in Seattle, right? Like, definitely go like a couple of days before if you can get familiar with the city, get familiar with how to get to your testing center. Um, I don't think, Amanda, I don't think you'll have any trouble navigating the Iowa traffic after living in California. But um, I do think it's good to just make sure that you know, like where you're going and how to get there and just kind of get used to it. You don't want to have to deal with like, you know, I had a stressful flight the night before, especially if you're flying to a town to take the MCAT, like I would be like constantly, like, what if I miss my flight? What if things go on? I'm like, I would have a lot more stress going on if I could like land there like two days before and then just like kind of hang out in the hotel rooms and maybe review flashcards or, or, you know, go for a walk and like, you know, try some food from the local, the local Iowa cuisine. Um, then I think that's how I would try to do it if you were in that scenario. Um, and that's regardless of time zones, um, just trying to minimize the stress of the, the, the day itself, um, trying to get there like a little bit beforehand, but it looks like you're already doing that, Amanda. So kudos other than that, try to get like onto a similar schedule, but that's very difficult, um, for that, for that specific movement. Yeah. Just to reiterate some of what Phil said, you know, making sure that you're waking up at a time that corresponds to the time that you will wake up on test day, um, making sure that you're actually getting into the swing of things a couple of weeks in advance, not just the week before. If you're able to, I would strongly recommend doing that. That way your body gets used to it, gets adjusted to it. Um, like Phil said, you're already heading there a little early, which is great. And then something else that it's not necessarily going to help with the adjustment to the time zone, but may help reduce stress is if you know what you're going to, going to sound really silly. If you know what, you know, snacks you're going to eat on test day, what lunch you're going to eat on test day, um, et cetera, then actually practicing with those breaks, including those things that way you just, you know, you're, you're calmer on test day and some things are still familiar. Um, and then our last question for this AMA. So, um, 
This one is coming in from Emma, but Emma, you were not the only question, the only person with questions about um, retaking and whatnot. So if you do pretty well on the MCAT, um, but feel confident that with some more time, with some more studying, you're able to do even better, um, would it be okay to test? And kind of what would the effect be if you, you know, scored initially in the high five teens, um, but then score a little, just a little bit lower, one or two points lower when you actually take the exam? So a couple of things. First, the high five teens, right, is a very competitive score. And so you have to weigh the, the cost and the benefit of, okay, I may end up spending months, right, studying again, and then get a score that's basically the same thing. Is that a good use of your time, right? Probably not. Look at the places you're interested in applying to. I know sometimes students are like, oh yeah, I'm applying to like these really top, you know, medical schools and um, their, their average is like 520, right? Or 521. That's the average. That means there were people who scored above and people who scored below, right? And averages take into account outliers. <laughs> so um, be very mindful of that, right? That's different than if they give you a median. And then just keeping in mind that you also have to think about the rest of your application. This is, I'm steering a little way from just the five teens, but keep in mind the rest of your application, right? Just because you're not at the average score of the place that you're applying to, if your application is really strong, otherwise you have, you know, robust undergrad experiences, um, great personal statement. I, I hope we have stressed enough the importance of the personal statement during our last two AMA videos. Um, you know, those are all things to keep in mind when you're deciding, should I retest or not? For the five teens, high five teens with the score that you put in there, honestly, I would say it's probably not worth it. Now, will it make or break your application if you get the same score? No, right? If you dropped, you know, a good chunk, then yeah, that's not going to look good. Medical scores will be like, why did you retest, right? You're actually doing worse. So can we really trust that first score? Um, you know, whereas if you go up one or two points, probably not worth it either. So in your case, I think I would actually say don't retest, don't worry about it. Um, but for folks who are trying to decide, right, do I retest or not, considering average of where of the places that you're applying, um, keeping in mind the rest of your application, and then being realistic with yourself, what would actually change if you had a couple more months, right? Was yeah. it a content issue and that's, you're going to address the content? Was it a strategy issue or were you all over the place and don't even know where to start, right? Or do you actually have the time to really sit down and, and study? So those are all things to keep in mind when people are deciding whether to retest or not in general. Yeah. So this is a really interesting thing. As you mentioned, we had a lot of questions on retakes, but I think Emma, in your scenario with like the scenario you've kind of like painted here of like, you know, like if you get like a 519, like, should I retake if I think I can get higher? I, I think in that scenario, you are better off trying to improve your application in other ways um, and go like get more relevant, like clinical or community experiences um, or just like build on those. I think that will do more than trying to go from like a 519 to a 521. Um, I don't think that that will have as much of an effect. Um, that being said, there are times it does make sense to retake and there are scenarios where students do need to retake. Um, this actually relates a little bit to last week um, or like the earlier AMA video uh, that like, as I, we were talking about like how we prepped for the MCAT and how you kind of like did like self prep. And I said like, Oh, I don't think I could do that. Um, but I actually think that the MCAT has gotten so big and so difficult and so monstrous and 
MCAT students are so good like that you're being compared against that it's really hard to self prep period. Um, that being said, a lot of students still do it. Some students are very successful with it, but a lot of students like take the test and then don't do well um, because they try to like self prep without like a lot of structure. Um, and, and I don't think that med schools immediately say like, Oh, like this person, like if you got a bad score and then you studied and you like did way better and you improved, then like med schools aren't going to be like, Oh, this person got like a 495 at first. And now they got a 510, but they got a 495 that first time we shouldn't let them in. That's not a thing. Um, they know that like students get kind of caught off guard. They get kind of blindsided by the test. The MCAT is a monster of a test. A lot of students don't really, it's every student doesn't really understand it until they're in it and like prepping for it. And so it's very often that like students get a poor first score. Um, so getting a poor first score and then retaking totally fine. No, no, no big, um, black marks on your application for that. What does hurt is if you got a bad score and then you retook and you got a bad score again, um, because then the test like the AAMC or not the AMC, the admissions committees of the med schools are going to look at that and be like, like they knew that they did bad and they just tried to do it again. Like they didn't learn from that. They didn't grow from this. They just thought we'll just like take it again and that'll fix the issue. Um, I think it is fine to retake, but you need to make sure like ideally, obviously no one ever has to retake and you just like do awesome the first time. If you have to retake, not the end of the world. Um, but you need to make sure, I think there's a little bit more pressure um, in that scenario that if you are going to retake, you need to make sure that you are seeing an improvement. Um, that being said, it shouldn't ever be a surprise, like a complete surprise what you get on a, on a on an exam because you should be taking practice tests. You should have ideas about where you're at currently. And so I don't think it's a good idea if you got like, a 502 and you want to retake and you take a bunch of practice tests and all your practice tests around 502 don't retake right like get like do figure out what you need to do to improve your score and then retake um i think a lot of times students get really caught up on dates they're like i need to apply in may or i need to apply in june and so like i would rather have a student like i know students who have retaken in august and gotten into med school. I know students who have taken the test in May and done badly and didn't get into med school. Um, so rather like time, like the time you take the exam and the time you apply is important and useful, but it is not the most important. Um, so don't let that trump everything else. Make sure that you are ready for the test when you take the test. As I said, you can take the test in August and still get in. Um, and with that, like a late application, um, it is maybe a little bit more difficult, but if it, if your MCAT score is competitive, if you do that, then that will help you rather than retaking and not being competitive. Yeah. Well, we are excited to have had the opportunity to answer some more questions. Like Phil said, we, we may be able to, to do something else. Um, as always, make sure to keep working hard take care of yourself, hop on. We talked about some of the resources that are available to you guys last week. You, those resources are still available to you guys this week. Hop over to the Jack Weston website. Give us your feedback. We love to hear what you guys think about this podcast and have a great week.